Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. This episode, we're looking at the life of Saul, a story you can read in the first book of Samuel, chapter 9. And Mike, would be really helpful to get a sense of who, who Saul was, who his parents were. What's his, what's his background? Well, we first meet him in 1 Samuel, chapter 9, where the story starts off by saying there was a wealthy, influential man named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. And that's about all we know about the family. So they're... Benjamites from one of those southern tribes. And his family seems to have been pretty well off, pretty much people of standing in the community. And uh, that, of course, will be part of the thing that Israel is looking for at this time, to have someone of standing, someone who can stand up to the big problem that they're facing at this time. Because this is the person that's going to become the first king of Israel. So upbringing background is important. So there's a sort of high standing in society. Yes. And of course, really, the Israelites are looking for the wrong thing. Just to set the whole thing in context, why are they wanting a king in the first place? After all, they've got the living God as their king. He's always been their king. But in the earlier chapters of 1 Samuel, what we find is that the the people group known as the Philistines are becoming an increasing problem. The Philistines lived essentially in five cities on the coastal strip to the southwest of Israel by the sea. And as they were growing, they were pressing in more and more into Israelite land, attacking, wanting to take over land. And so the Israelites uh, are constantly getting defeated by these and other peoples and are saying, you know what, the, the thing is, the reason we are getting defeated is we are not strong like these other nations. And what do those other nations have that we don't? It's obvious they have a king. They have a, a galvanizing point, a leading point. And so particularly because the prophet Samuel is getting older, we read in 1 Samuel 8, his sons aren't as godly as him. And it's this mixture of Samuel, you've been our leader and our judge and our priest and prophet, but you're getting older. You're not going to be around forever. Your sons aren't walking in your ways. We're constantly getting beaten. What we need is a king. And although Samuel initially really rejected that, God had said, no, give them what they asked for. And I'll tell you what, don't just give them what they asked for. Give them the very best king we can find according to the standards that they're looking for. And this is, of course, not just a monarchy, but a warrior king, presumably. It's going to be a warrior king, which, of course, is what kings were in those days, weren't they? They were the culmination. They were the focal point of the kingdom. Yes, uh, but it wasn't just about sitting on a nice throne and, you know, opening parliament once a year, as in our British understanding of having a king and queen. This was certainly a warrior king. So, Having someone who, as we meet in chapter nine, like Saul, comes from a wealthy family, a man of standing. And when we first meet him, we discover he's described as an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller. So he's tall, he's strong, he's strapping, he's well off, he dresses well. Man, he's got a lot going is, for him. He's got a lot going for him. This is who we need as a king, surely would be an instant thing they would be thinking. But it's not because of that, first of all, that he's chosen. Now, obviously, he doesn't know 
he's going to be chosen as king. So how does all that come about? Uh, it comes about through a bunch of donkeys. His dad has got a whole load of donkeys. It seems he, part of his money came from donkey breeding. And, and some donkeys get lost one day. And Saul goes off with a servant looking for them, like you would. And they can't find them. And they're constantly looking for them. And eventually, they get so desperate. They say, do you know what? We're going to have to go and find Samuel, the prophet, and see if he can give us a prophetic word about where these donkeys are. Because this was your wealth. you know. Mm. This, this was so important. Now, God had already spoken to Samuel the day before and said, tomorrow, I'm going to send to you a Benjamite who's the man I have chosen as king. So it's God's choice. And the next day, Saul turns up saying, excuse me, Mr. Prophet, can you tell me where my donkeys are? There's a coincidence. And the prophet says, never mind your donkeys. He gives them his word. They're safe. They're back at home. They've been fine. But I have a word from God for you. The whole heart of Israel is turning to you. It was a symbol, a picture of them looking to him to be king. And here's an interesting bit. He says, but I'm a Benjamite from the smallest tribe and the smallest clan. And in other words, he's he's really humble at this stage in his life. Certainly self-effacing. I mean, the last thing presumably he was expecting was to be told he's about to be become king. Yeah, you know, if you go out looking for donkeys, you don't expect coming back with a crown on your head, do you? He didn't actually get the crown that day, but it happened the next day when Samuel gathers people and takes a flask of oil, pours that oil over Saul's head. A flask of oil? An alabaster flask, a a pot of of oil, and he would have poured, you know, not just a little Mm. cross or something marked on its head, a whole jug of oil would have been poured over his head. So it was running down on all over you. Why? It was a symbol of the empowering of the Holy Spirit that God was giving for you to serve in this office. Prophets, priests, kings were normally anointed in the Old Testament. So he pours this oil over him and he says to him, you know, God anoints you as a king and he even gives him a sign. He tells him uh, what's going to happen the next day and he says this very detailed prophecy that follows you. You're going to meet this crowd of prophets and they're going to be singing and dancing and prophesying. And when you see them, you'll start prophesying. And listen to this. You'll be given a new heart. You'll be changed into a new man. And he goes, and as this happens, all these things happen. So God gives him a sign that what has just happened to him is indeed from him. He's been anointed as king, and God has chosen to give to Israel the very best kind of king he could. But according to the standards they were looking for, This guy who could be strong and a leader. And, you know, God didn't really figure in it in their thinking. We just need a strong, good leader who will make sure that we are victorious in battle. God says, "Okay, you want that sort of king? I'll give him to you. And he gives him every advantage, even anointing him with the Holy Spirit to enable him to do that task. What what did Saul experience as that flask of oil was poured over him? What he experienced at that exact moment, I'm not quite sure, but later as he goes off, he he has this experience of the Spirit of God coming upon him in power. And it says, and he joined in their prophesying. I, I don't know what he was saying. We're not actually told. But what this marks out is that absolutely he's been marked out as God's king. And there's even another step because then all this has happened in private so far. He's had a private word he's been anointed just among his family but what about the nation 
And so it needs this third step in, in chapter 10, where he summons the representatives of the people and calls them forward tribe by tribe and clan by clan. And eventually it comes to the Benjamites and it comes to the clan of, of Kish and they're casting lots and being led by God to choose the right person. And eventually it comes down to Saul. And they said, where's Saul? He's been chosen. Guess where he is? Hiding among the baggage. So again, it shows us that at this point, Saul was pretty much a humble guy. You know, he's not thinking, yes, just make way for me now. Here is my moment for which I've been waiting. He's, he doesn't want to take this up. But they find him hiding among the baggage and they bring him forward. And, and Samuel says, here is the man that God has chosen. So he's been given the word personally. He's been anointed with his family. And now he gets the acclamation of all the leaders of Israel. Long live the king. They shout out in chapter 10. And then Samuel does something really important. He explains to the people and to the king the regulations of kingship. And, and he writes them down in a scroll so there can be no misunderstanding because he doesn't want him to be a king like the kings of these other nations. This king needs to follow the law because, and obey the, the law. Because there hadn't been a job description exactly for, for a king of Israel. There hadn't. So Samuel has this very important task of, writing up what does being a king involve. And the main thing will be, and this will prove to be Saul's undoing, the main thing is that the king must always remember he has a king. There is a king in heaven. And the earthly king must always obey the heavenly king's word. One of the first things that will go on to happen is the story is Saul will be given the chance to see whether he'll be that sort of king or not. So shortly before his well, coronation, if you like, he, he's actually in hiding. He's in hiding, hiding there in the baggage. <laughs> That's incredible, isn't it, when you think about it? But again, here's a man who is not saying, yes, this is it. This is my moment. I, I know I've been waiting for this. The whole picture we get of Saul at the beginning is a picture of humility, a feeling I can't do this, a humble man who really doesn't want to take this task up. Because, of course, if he was tall and handsome and had lots going for him, you know, he could have ridden on that uh, premise. You know, his good looks could have got him by, but he recognised that wasn't enough. I think he certainly did. So, again, let's forget any ideas of David good, Saul bad, which is often a parody of this period. Saul started out really good. God did not choose a rubbish king. God did not say... Look, you lot, you miserable lot. You want a king, you've rejected me. I'll give you a king. Try this one. He picks the best that he can find. But it's the best he can find by the standards they're looking for. Mm. So he's he's appointed, he's anointed as, as this warrior king. And how does it go? Well, it doesn't go very well pretty quickly. One of the things that the prophet Samuel had said to him when he'd actually anointed him as king, was he given him a bit of a test? He said to him, I want you to go to Gilgal and I'm going to come there and offer uh, the sacrifice to God before you go into battle. But you have to wait seven days and then I'll tell you what to do. So by the time we get to chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, there they are gathered in battle against the Philistines. Now, the Philistines at this time were a fearsome enemy. 
one of the things that made the Philistines so strong was they had um, they were using iron technology. This is the beginning of the Iron Age. So they've got superior weapons. Mm. So they both outnumbered, outmanned, outweaponed Israel. So that's why they always won. They even had chariots as well. So they've got iron weapons. They've got much superior technology. So by the time we get to chapter 13, there is Saul and his son, Jonathan, who are gathered with their armies and the Philistines are pressing hard against them. They're gathering for battle. And, and Saul's waiting. Remember, he's been told he has to wait seven days. And bless him, he waits. He waits. And all this time he's waiting, the Philistine army is gathering. Mm, more you can, you can and see more them almost in your, in your imagination. And they're all gathering around. And mm. sadly, as this begins to happen, his troops start to get really afraid. And, and some of them even start to desert. And to scatter. And so you can imagine, think, put yourself in that situation. I'm waiting for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice. He said, wait seven days. It is day seven. He hasn't come. I'm going to have to do it myself. Now, that's an interesting little thing. Why did he think he had to do it himself? Clearly, he thought that it would be the sacrifice that would turn things hmm. rather than trusting God and what that sacrifice expressed. And so when Samuel doesn't turn up, he feels, I'll have to do it. You know, I'm sure many of us have had times where we thought, I'll just have to do it myself. And he offers the sacrifice. Now, it wasn't that he couldn't offer a sacrifice. Yes, he could do it. Anyone could give a sacrifice to God. Only priests could do it on the altar at the temple, but elsewhere others could offer sacrifices. But the disobedience was not that he offered a sacrifice. The disobedience was that Samuel had said, wait seven days and I will offer Quite precise. the sacrifice. Hmm. And this really was his first test to see, will you put God's word to you over your own will? Now, remember, in those days, kings were autocratic. Whatever they decided, that was it. The king was at the top of the pile. Hmm. But this was all about understanding, no, you're not at the top of the pile, Mr. King. God the King is at the top of the pile, and I, his prophet, represent him. So he offers the sacrifice, and just as he finishes offering that sacrifice, chapter 13 tells us that Samuel arrived. You can imagine the relief, <laughs> and, and Saul goes out and rushes to greet him and hugs him, and, oh, you're here at last. And the first words out of Samuel's mouth is, what have you done? And Saul clearly knows what he's saying. He said, well, you know, when, when I saw that the men were scattering and you didn't come at the time you said, notice that little pushing the blame mm. to him, mm. that will become one of the characteristics of Saul's life. He, he was a blame shifter. He always blamed other people. And when I saw that the Philistines were gathering, I, I, I felt compelled to offer the sacrifice. And, and Samuel replies with this powerful, powerful saying. He says, you acted foolishly. You've not kept God's command. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. He's going to give it to another man. Wow, did you hear that? If you had done, he would have established your kingdom hmm. for all time. 
<laughs> and it wouldn't have been the kingdom of David. It would have been the kingdom of Saul. And Jesus would have ended up not as son of David, but as son of Saul. If only you had done. History would have been completely changed. My goodness. This is not God setting up this guy for a fall. He would have been happy to do it this way. But here's a king who wants to put his word above God's word to him. So cracks were beginning to form. Cracks beginning to form. But tell me any monarch, tell me any politician that likes stepping down from power. Hmm. Power is very seductive, isn't it? And here's this king in place. He's not going to turn around now and say, oh, right, if God's going to take it away, I'll take the crown off my head then. And in fact, what we find happening now in the remainder of 1 Samuel is Saul's slow decline. He, he, he just really goes from bad to worse till he ends up in a terrible state by the end of the book. And at the same time, while he's declining, the next guy on the scene interwoven into this story, and we'll look at this in another episode, the one who's going to replace him, King David, starts to rise up. And these stories are interwoven together. But Saul is absolutely not going to give up. I was going to say, I would have thought he wants to hang on to <laughs> the kingship for as long as possible. He absolutely does. And do you know what? God even gives him a second chance. One of the things I love about the Bible story is how God is always the God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance. Now, Second chance here, because remember, this is Israel's king. What this king does will shape, perhaps, how kingship will be in the future. So in 1 Samuel 15, we find Samuel comes along and on God's behalf gives him another opportunity to redeem himself and redeem his disobedience. And so Samuel comes along and says, listen, I was sent by God to anoint you as king. Now, I've got a word from God for you, a command from God. So here's his opportunity once again. And so in chapter 15, God says to Saul through the prophet Samuel, go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. So here's, here's an attack now coming from the east and the southeast rather than the west where the Philistines have been coming from. You're to go and you're to destroy them completely. And don't spare any of them, God sends. Sounds pretty ruthless, doesn't it, to mm. us? But, mm. you know, this was a godless people who'd been attacking Israel, resisted Israel over many years, resisted God, worshipped false gods. And they're told to destroy everything. And here's key words. Don't spare them. Put everything to the sword. And he specifies even... Cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. What an odd thing to include, you might think. Mm. But it will turn out to be very important as this story unfolds. So there, were, there was more significance to those animals than you might have thought? Yes, there was. Because as this story unfolds, he does go into attack against the Amalekites and he actually wins. He takes King Agag of the Amalekites captives and he takes some of his people, and some of them are killed, but he spares Agag, and the text says he spares Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle and the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good, and all the ordinary stuff and the rubbish stuff he gets rid of. Hmm, what does that tell us about this guy? Now, meanwhile, God is giving a word to Samuel, saying, I am so grieved in my heart that I appointed 
Saul king because he's not carried out my word. And Samuel then spends the whole night praying before God, weeping before God, early the next morning, goes out to meet. And and he says, hey, you know, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. But unfortunately, as he says, I've carried out the Lord's instructions in the background, Samuel can hear, and <laughs> Clearly all not to the these letter. animals, noises. And he says to him, so, uh, sorry, w- what then is this uh, bleating of the sheep that I can hear? What's this lowing of the cattle? And here's Mr. Blame Shifter at his best. Ah, yes, that was the soldiers who did that. <laughs> Somebody um, else did it. We, d- we did offer, you know, we we spared the best of the the sheep and the cattle. Oh, and by the way, we brought them back to sacrifice to God. So not only blame shifting, but he always has an excuse hmm. up his sleeve. And, and Samuel just stops in mid-track. He, he just says, stop, let me tell you what God says. And he exposes what was going on. He says, you know, why did you pounce on the plunder? I saw what was in your heart. And again, he tries to fight back and he says, but I I did obey the Lord. You know, I did do this. It was the soldiers again. And then Samuel replies with a, a verse that is so powerful. He says, what is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than the offering of the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft, stubbornness as bad as worshipping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Two things there. One, God always looks for the heart, not the externals. I couldn't care less about your sacrifices, God saying through Samuel. I wanted your heart and your disobedience shows me I do not have your heart. And I can't have a king like that. Therefore, number two, from this point on, the Lord has rejected you as king. From God's point of view, Saul is no longer king from this point on. But as we said a few minutes ago, kings are not very good at giving up their power. And so the remaining chapters of this book will be this desperate fight to hold on to power, trying to resist all these enemies around them, but also trying to cling on to power as he sees God's next man coming up right in the midst of them. So how long did Saul hang on as king? Well, he was king in total for 40 years. That's around 1050 to 1010 uh, BC. But although from this point on, God has said, you are no longer my king, he's clinging on to power. People don't like to give up power, do they, still today? And he clings on to power for as long as he possibly can. You mentioned earlier his son, Jonathan, is sort of in the picture on the scene. Um, Might Jonathan have become the next king? In the normal way of seeing things, absolutely. That's what happened in the ancient world. Your eldest son would become king. So to all intents and purposes, Jonathan should have become the next king. And yet there's this amazing story interwoven in these chapters. 
Jonathan himself is an incredible warrior. We get a great story in 1 Samuel 14 of uh, how he goes out and he's just fed up of his dad sitting around under a pomegranate tree while the Philistines are gathering and uh, he and some of his men go off and, uh, and, and kill a few. And he is this amazing guy and he develops this incredible friendship with David. They become really, really good friends. So now, David, David, now where does David come from? Now, David is brought into the story almost by accident. Part of Saul's decline in these years is he starts to lose his mental stability. I think he's juggling with that many things and living with a false life and all this starts to undermine his mental stability. And by chapter 16, we, we find him becoming what we would see as increasingly mentally unstable. The Bible uses the language of an evil spirit tormenting him. Um, but one of the things that helped him was, and your program presenters would love this, some really nice godly music. And heart playing and music used to really help. And uh, someone said, you know what? I know there's a good young lad who's really good on the guitar, to put it into our terms. <laughs> that would be uh, the, the harp he, then. He can, he can play a mean tune on the harp. And uh, so they bring David to the court to play his harp and sing his songs. Probably perhaps some of those early psalms that he'd become famous for. And whenever he sang and played, Saul's mood would be lifted and he found it. Suited. So here is Saul introducing his replacement to his court. He didn't realise that. He didn't realise it. Now, David doesn't stay there at court. He came and went. He's only a young lad at this point, a young teenager. You know what happens with young boys as they grow through these years. They change phenomenally. So here's this young lad who's introduced to the story. And it's presumably in those visits that David and Jonathan begin to develop their friendships. Because they're a similar age, are they? Yes, they're a similar age. They obviously clicked together. And by chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, uh, the authors, they're telling us that their hearts were really knit together, that their hearts became one, that they had this profound sort of brotherly love between them. And they, they, they even make a covenant with one another. And as the story unfolds, Jonathan sees the writing on the wall. He knows where this, this is going, but doesn't fight for his own position. Actually, at one point, he makes a gift to David of his robe. And scholars think that was a way of him saying, I recognize what God is doing, David. I see God's left my father. He's clearly with you. And in this period where Saul is declining and David is rising up. Jonathan, Saul's son, will prove to be a true loyal friend to David and will stay a friend to him to the end. Again, it could have gone either way. He could have been the jealous son that was desperate to cling on to power. Absolutely, because in Saul's insanity, he'll actually make attempts on David's life. He'll throw spears at him. And Jonathan, rather than think, yeah, dad, get him next time. Jonathan will actually help David. He arranges for him to escape at one point. He arranges for like secret message to be passed to him. And they become these great friends. And I said, make this covenant together. And David then has to flee. He spends the next 10 years hiding, running from Saul that we'll look at in a, another episode. 
until sadly Saul's decline has become so bad that by the end of the book of Samuel, we see him absolutely at the bottom. How does his life end? Things get worse with the Philistines. He's calling out to God for God to answer. And no matter what he does, God is not answering. God stops speaking. If we keep blocking our ears, you know, the point can go when God says, I ain't speaking anymore. And he stops speaking. And so because God stops speaking to him, then he does something that God's law forbade. He actually goes to a medium, to a spiritist, to try and get some guidance. Now, let's be clear. God's word is very, very clear that this is dangerous. It's ungodly. Do not get involved with spiritualism and occultism. God's word says it's dangerous. And if any listeners have, go and get some prayer for God to cut you off from that. But he does this, a reflection of how low he has fallen. Remember where he started, this godly, humble young man. Now, going to a spiritist and he goes to this spiritist and says, God's not answering me. Call up Samuel for me. This spiritist calls him up. Now, was he actually Samuel in his spirit that came and God permitted that because he's the sovereign God of everything? Was it a lying and deceiving spirit? People take different views about that. Because at this point, Samuel had died? He died. He died some years ago. And so, He's asking for his wisdom. And Samuel says, why have you troubled me? Why have you called me back? And he says, because God's not speaking to me, then why trouble me? And all he gets from Samuel is a word of judgment. And so the story ends, sadly, with Saul and his son, Jonathan, going into battle against the Philistines on Mount Gilboa in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, the Philistines completely routing them. Saul and Jonathan both getting killed in battle and not just getting killed, but humiliated. Because when the Philistines find his body the next day after the battle on Mount Gilboa, they cut his head off, they strip off his armor, you know, and they placed his armor in their temple and nail his body to the wall of a nearby town. What a tragic end mm. for a man who had so much potential, so much promise, the spirit of God on his life, the promise of God on his life, so many natural abilities, and he throws it away. Why? Because he thinks he knows better than God. Can we fall into the same trap? I think it's very easy for us to do, isn't it? We know God's spoken. But because of how circumstances turn out, we can't see how God could do something. What's God going to do? And a bit like Saul end up saying the Philistines were gathering. My soldiers were leaving. There was this, there was that. You didn't come. And becoming blame shifters and excuses as a reason for us doing something that we know we've not got God's permission to do. Maybe even that God has told us not to do. One thing I've learned in life is that God may often seem late in his coming, but as we look back, he's never late. It looked like Samuel was late, but there he was on day seven, late on day seven, but there, just as he said he would be. And if we will keep waiting for what God has said, God is well able to bring about his promises without our manipulation, without our help. 
David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.